0: Turn in your Bibles please to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, chapter 5. Now some of you may be wondering here why we are spending so much time digging into the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, after all, is an intensely theological book. It's deep. It's heavy. It's very heavy lifting. It has challenged me personally, I think, far beyond any other book of the Bible that I have preached through so far. There's a reason that this New Testament epistle is constantly and consistently debated. And I'm talking far beyond just the identity of who the author is, which is another whole debate in and of itself. The book is a lot like the book of Romans, which is also rife with theological insights that push us beyond just a cursory reading of the text. It pushes us to a place where we have to really think through, really process through these wonderful truths. And the truths contained here challenge us to look at the entirety of Scripture and then wrestle through these complexities contained in these texts, specifically the warning passages, which are notoriously difficult. But as you may be wondering why such an in-depth study of the high priestly role is necessary, I mean, really, pastor, do I need to know who Melchizedek is? And what bearing does that possibly have on my life? After all, where does that deep dive help me? in the struggles that I am facing. Maybe I'm facing struggles with parenting. Maybe I'm facing struggles with relationships. Maybe I'm facing struggles in my marriage. Maybe I'm struggling through a physical pain. Maybe I've lost a dear loved one. How does that understanding of Hebrews and Moses and Melchizedek help me? Why do we need to go into such a deep, dive into these theological truths and let me answer that question for you with this spiritual truth that your level of spiritual growth is going to be largely determined by two things one of them is your understanding of who God is your understanding of who God is. And the second one is your understanding of who you are in relation to who God is. Those two things will largely determine where you're going to be at and what kind of trajectory you're going to have in your spiritual growth. Because if you have a faulty view of who God is, then that's going to change your entire worldview. If you have a faulty view, uh, if you have a, a right view of who God is but then you have a wrong view of who you are in relationship to God then you're also going to have a wrong worldview. It's going to shape everything that you do like we talked about this morning it will shape your thinking. If you don't understand who God is and you don't understand who you are in relationship to God, everything changes everything. It's that understanding of who God is and who we are in relationship to God and who God is that drives us to the cross of Jesus. That right there drives us there. It's that understanding that teaches us to rehearse the gospel in our minds every day as we begin each day so that we are equipped for the spiritual warfare that we will encounter today and every day. John Calvin put it this way, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. That's very true. Now we've already seen the majestic splendor of God in the opening chapters as we walk through the seven glories of Christ in chapter one. And we've seen that he's exalted above the prophets and the angels, above Moses and Joshua, even above Uh, the appointed priest, Aaron. But we have also been given a glimpse into our own sinfulness along the way, haven't we? Because the things that we see in them are like a mirror of what we see in ourselves. Especially in the warning passages, where we too may have been tempted to be so caught up in life that our ship of life is passing by the harbor of salvation. Or we too can be so hard hearted that we miss God's rest completely. See we see in these in this study of Hebrews that we can be self centered grumblers just like those in the desert, can't we? We can be complainers, we can be arrogant, we can be prideful sinners. And our sinfulness is even more evident when we have to look at it through God's perfectly holy and perfectly righteous lens instead of our self-righteous lens where we shade everything in our favor and all of that should in turn move us to the inevitable conclusion that we are woefully incapable of reconciling ourselves to God under our own terms We need a mediator. We need an intercessor. We need someone who can represent us before God who's not hindered by that kind of sinfulness that we've seen in ourselves. Well, the Jewish people understood this well and they recognized their own sinfulness and their need to have their sins forgiven by a holy and righteous God. What they did not understand is who was going to be the mediator, who was going to be the go-between, who was going to be the one between them and God. I mean, that's what Moses did, and then that's what God appointed Aaron to do through the sacrifices under the Old Covenant. But the author of Hebrews here has been demonstrating all through this epistle that they are now under a new covenant, a better covenant than the Old Covenant. And this new covenant does have a mediator. It does have an intercessor. It does have a go-between that can help man be reconciled to God. And he is not a priest like Aaron. He is a priest far superior to Aaron. And he's not just a high priest who would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat once a year after making sacrifice for his own sins. No, this high priest would sprinkle his own blood upon the mercy seat and then atoning for all sins for all those who put their faith and trust in him. He's not just a priest. He's the only one in scripture called the great high priest. And we're talking about Jesus, the son of God. And now to validate his claim that Jesus is the great high priest, the author of Hebrews, remember, first reviews for them the qualifications of an earthly high priest. And we spent a lot of time on these. So let's just quickly go through these. Remember in verse 1, the first qualification was that the high priest must have a shared humanity. He had to be human. He had to be human. He had to, have a, he had to partake of the same nature, if you will. He had to be someone who's a partaker of human nature, a human mind, a human body angels for example could not be an effective mediator for man because they do not partake of the same nature as man so they could not be our mediator between God and man it had to be a man had to be somebody who shared in humanity secondly we saw in the second part of verse 1 that one of the most important qualifications for the high priest was that they had to have the ability to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins that was a large part of what they did Remember, I told you that key function of a high priest is to mediate between man and God. And in the Old Covenant, they did that through the sacrificial system. So we have two qualifications. The first one is they had to have the high priest had to have a shared humanity. The second one is that the high priest had to mediate between God and man by offering gifts and sacrifices. Then in verses 2 and 3, we saw our third qualification for a high priest. And that was that he must have a sincere compassion. He must have a sincere compassion for those that he is mediating for before God. And the idea here is that the high priest would not let his emotions rule his response to God's people as they came seeking guidance for the sins in their lives. That he, because he struggled with his own sin, because he knows what it was like, would be compassionate sincerely compassionate for what they were going through, the struggles that they were feeling. And uh, text in verse 2 tells us that this sincere compassion is rooted in his own weakness. He must have his own struggles with sin, his own battles with temptation, his own sense of grief and loss and anger and bitterness and loneliness, etc., Because it's from there, knowing his own struggles and those things, that he's able to deal compassionately with those that God has put under his care. And knowing what that's like is essential for the high priest to truly intercede for man on his behalf before God. The fourth qualification we saw was in verse 4, and that is that the high priest had to be supernaturally selected all were divinely appointed. The only way to become a priest was through the supernatural selection by God. And remember, we looked at this, any attempts to do otherwise, any attempts to put yourself in the place of a priest that was not appointed by God, we saw number 16 didn't go all that well, did it? As the earth opened up and swallowed them all. And then those who complained about how how strong God's action were, 14,000 more disappeared off the face of the earth. The only way—I mean, all of those precise qualifications were to demonstrate that no one might dare approach God in the way of their own choosing. That we don't get to determine how God will accept us, what things He'll accept about us, which ones He which ones He should accept about us, which ones He shouldn't accept about us. Because when we match up those criteria, and incidentally, you know, if we have a hundred people here today, we have a hundred different criteria. For what should be acceptable before God, that sliding scale of righteousness is called self-righteousness, not God's righteousness. God's righteousness, what that sliding scale is here. That's what is the guideline. That's the scale. That's the measurement. So the only way to approach God is through the way of God's choosing through his ordained mediator. In the Old Testament, that mediator was the high priest. He had very specific, very ordained qualifications that we've been looking at. So beginning in verse 5, we began to see how Christ fulfills all of those qualifications and so much more. The author takes each one of these qualifications and then deals with them in reverse order. So the very last qualification we looked at was had to be supernaturally selected. So thus, that's where we began in verses 5 and 6. That's the first one the author deals with here. So last week we saw that God the Father supernaturally selected Christ as the high priest. Notice the words here in the second half of verse 5. But he who said to him, and who's the he in that verse? That's God the Father. Jesus did not assume the office of priest because he wanted to glorify himself. Instead, God the Father appointed him to that office. Now, the quote that that the Spirit has, the author of Hebrews, use is from Psalm 2, verse 7. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. It's a kingly psalm. It's a psalm that was was read and sung at the coronation of a king. And but we've seen it earlier back in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 where the author used it to speak about Jesus being declared as the son of God. So why does the author use a verse that talks about Jesus being declared the son of God? which highlights his fulfillment as a king, why does he use that verse now in the context of a high priest? Because that's what we're talking about here. And the answer to that we saw last week was found in Acts chapter 13, verses 33 and 34, where we dug into that last week. And we see Paul using that same psalm, Psalm 2, verse 7, to support the meaning of the resurrection of Christ. That text, today I have begotten you, is not referring to Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, but it's referring to his resurrection from the dead. Christ resurrected from the dead in a glorious new resurrected body, and he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father. How do we know that he accepted his sacrifice? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. The resurrection then shows that God the Father accepted his atoning work. So Christ was not only anointed as Son of God because he fulfilled all of God's covenant promises through the Davidic covenant, but also as a king, Peter actually in Acts chapter 2 confirms this about the resurrection as well. But that's not all, because the resurrection, he was also anointed as our great high priest, because of his atoning work on the cross and subsequent resurrection from the dead. Remember, when Aaron was ordained, he sacrificed and offered sacrifices of what? Animals. But Jesus Christ, to become our high priest, offered the sacrifice of himself and then arose from the dead. So Christ is both anointed king and anointed great high priest. His title of son of God was bestowed upon him for his atoning work at the cross. Because Jesus is the eternal son of God, he is also the eternal king. But his office of high priest couldn't begin until what? Until the incarnation. Why? Because he had to be a man. He had to fill that qualification. Secondly, God had already declared that a priest needed to become needed to come from the tribe of Levi, from the line of Aaron. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah in the line of David. So Jesus is so Jesus is our great high priest, and if he's going to be our great high priest, then he has to be a different order than what Aaron was. He has to be from a different tribe and a different order. And in fact, he is, because verse 6 tells us that he is from the line of Melchizedek. Now, to show that, to prove that, the author takes us to Psalm 110. We've already seen that again. That was back in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. In that time, the author quoted Psalm 10, verse 1 talking about a messianic king who would rule the nations when he comes to reign, fulfilling the Davidic covenant. But this time he uses Psalm 110 verse 4, which specifically prophesied that this conquering king would also be a priest. So the second important distinction is that Christ is from the order of Melchizedek. The first one is he's a great high priest who is appointed and is eternal the second one is, he's from the line of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is only mentioned in the Old Testament two times, Genesis chapter 14 and Psalm 110 verse 4. That name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. Melech, king, Sadek, righteousness. King of righteousness. We also know that he was the king of Salem. But one of the most unique things about Melchizedek is that he is both a king and a priest only in Melchizedek and now in Christ do we see these two offices combined only there so in essence Melchizedek is a picture a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who is a heavenly high priest who is a priest forever so Christ fulfills the first four requirements of a high priest He became the sacrifice on earth according to the Father's divine will and appointment. He was supernaturally selected. Upon accomplishing his atoning work of the cross, he was appointed the great high priest forever. What sacrifice did he bring? Himself. It's his blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And through the resurrection, we see that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He is our great eternal high priest and great eternal king. Now, in verses 7 and 8, we see the next qualification working backwards, and that is sincere compassion. But this time the author breaks that down into two components. He wants to demonstrate for us how Christ fulfills this sincere compassion. How does he do it? Matter of fact, he wants to show not only how he does it, but he also wants to show how what his, what he does is far superior to than what the earthly priest had to do. So the first way in verse 7 is he has sincere compassion through his submission. He has sincere compassion through his submission. Then in verse 8, we're going to see he has developed sincere compassion through his suffering. So the first one in verse 7 is through his submission. Verse 8 is through his suffering. Now let's begin with the first of these in verse 7 this morning. That's probably as far as we'll get. Now, let's read that together. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death And he was heard because of his piety. Now, let me just say this before we unpack all that. Here's this. We could spend an eternity just reflecting on the glorious truth of that verse right there. We really could. You could meditate on both parts of this verse and never exhaust the depths of the impact that it has on our lives. But this is the kind of verse that we often just skim right over on our way to the next one. But if we truly understand this verse, it will indeed impact our view of God. Now remember, the author here is trying to demonstrate what? Sincere compassion for those he is to mediate for before God. And the reason a high priest is able to have sincere compassion is because of his shared weaknesses, his own battles with sin and temptations and grief and angerness and bitterness, etc., But Christ does not have those sins. He has been tempted, but he is without sin. But he does know what it's like to be tempted. Remember when we looked at that in chapter 4. As a matter of fact, he knows temptation to a degree that you and I will never know temptation. Why? Because eventually we will give in to temptation at some point, whatever it is but he never did. So that temptation on him never ended. It started at day one, and it ended when he said, it is finished. That temptation never ceased for him. As a matter of fact, it seemed to ramp up the closer he got to the cross. It was unceasing the attack on him. You and I never experienced that because we get to a point in our finiteness, if you will, where we'll eventually give in on some part of that temptation. And when we do, we go to God and ask him for forgiveness and move on. But he never relented. He never gave in. He was without sin. So he experienced temptation far beyond what you and I will ever do. But in verse 7, what the author wants to show us is the sincere compassion he has for us is through his submission to the Father's will. That's what's happening here. And beloved, learning how to submit to the Father's will when we're not sure exactly what he's trying to accomplish is a mighty struggle for everybody in this room. When the answer to your prayers are not the answers you expect. When you want it to just go away and it just keeps hanging around. When you're looking for that solution and you want it quickly and it's not coming quickly. When you're trying to discern his voice between a thousand competing voices in your head is one of the most difficult things a believer ever has to do. And this verse reminds us that Jesus has a sincere compassion for us in this area because he too knows what it's like to submit to the Father's will in a far greater way than you and I will ever experience. Notice there in verse 7, in the days of his flesh, that's referring to Christ's incarnation, all the days of his time on earth. Jesus offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears. And most scholars believe this kind of intense struggle is most likely talking about where? The Garden of Gethsemane. So keep your place in Hebrews and turn to Mark chapter 14, if you will, the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. And we'll pick it up there in verse 32. Mark 14, verse 32. You can also find this account in Luke chapter 22, but we're going to look here first at Mark 14, verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. Verse 33, and he took with him Peter and James and John, the inner three, if you will, and began to be what? Very distressed, and troubled. Now it sounds like he's worried a little bit, the way we translate that in English, but in the original language, it means he's suffering. He's not just a little upset. He's not just a little worried. He's grieving. He's grieving. He's distressed to the point, as a matter of fact, of tears and loud crying out to God. Notice they're greatly distressed and troubled. And then verse 34, and grieved, to what point? To the point of death. We're not talking about somebody who's a little anxious. We're not talking about somebody here who's a little worried. We're talking about somebody who is sweating, sweating droplets of blood. He is so grieved about what's about to happen here. He's Luke's account in Luke 22 verse 44 said he was praying fervently that his sweat became like drops of blood. Why is he in such agony about? Jesus is in anguish over the sin he is about to bear. Jesus is not in anguish over his physical death. Matter of fact, many times he prophesied about his own death. We'd have time to look at you. John chapter twelve, verse twenty-seven comes to mind. You can mark that down. He says, "You know what? What I could, I could let this pass, but this is what I came for." So he knew this is part of the plan. To say as much, to say that he's worried about death, would make him less than those countless men and women through the centuries who have faced death so confidently and courageously. But their deaths were not remotely close to what his death is going to be and what he's facing, because he's carrying our sins to the cross. Incidentally, not his own. Our sins. And he is being despised, and mocked, and beaten, and scourged for those whom whose sin he's carrying to the cross. But the worst part for him, was being separated from the Father as he bore the wrath for those sins. Together eternally, and yet for the first time, the Father's face would turn away from the Son as he bore that sin. Faced with the divine necessity of this sacrifice, as well as this impending separation while he endures the wrath of bearing our sins, the text tells us that Jesus cries out with loud cries and tears. And of course, this was the time in which Satan is in full attack mode, trying to get him to undermine what God has planned for him to do. But notice to whom Jesus cries out. It's not the disciples. He can barely keep them awake despite his imploring multiple times for them to keep praying for him. No, Jesus is crying out to the only one who can comfort him in his agony. Jesus is crying out to the one able to save him from death. Now, there's a lot of debate about what Jesus is praying for here because if he was indeed asking to be saved from death, in what sense would you say his prayer was heard? Since he was not delivered from that awful death. But in the original text, that word from is not the preposition apo, it's the preposition ek, which means out of or from out of. He's not praying to be saved from dying. He's praying. Pray, he is praying to be saved out of death through the resurrection. Jesus is asking to be sustained through the agony of burying our sins and through the separation from the Father and to be brought through death into resurrection and complete restoration with the Father. That is what he's praying for. He understands what's at stake here, and yet in this moment of intense agony, he does what? In the moment of this intense suffering, he does what? He submits to the Father's will. He asks the Father, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. If possible, Father, remove it from me. If there's another way in your plan, if there's another way to accomplish your will, Lord, I know what's in store. If there's another way, please make that happen. And he also prayed here in verse 36 in chapter 14, what? Yet not what I will, but what you will. In that moment of excruciating agony, in that moment of suffering, in that moment of distress, Jesus does what? He submits to the Father's will. And the Father heard his prayers, the text tells us, because of his piety. That word really means reverent submission. Reverent submission. And that is why we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Remember that in chapter 14, verses 15 and 16? Remember that verse? Because we have a great high priest who knows what it's like to have to press on and cry out to God even though he's not giving the answer that you wish he would give you. Beloved, have you ever cried out to God in a loud crying and tears to the Lord? Have you ever done that? Have you ever hurt so bad that even the tears don't seem to make it go away? Have you ever lost so much that you just silently weep and nothing comes out? The tears are all dried. Have you ever cried out to him to heal your broken body or restore your broken marriage? Have you ever cried out to him to heal your fractured family, save your wayward children? Have you ever done that and have the answer be no or not yet? What the author of Hebrews is doing is reminding us that Jesus knows what that's like to suffer that kind of pain and yet still submit to the Father's will. Except that Jesus' submission involved a temptation and a suffering that's unimaginable. Not only was it unimaginable in the terms of its gruesome physical reality, but for Jesus it meant separation from the Father, a separation that had never, ever existed. And all of that was for us. The wrath that he bore was not for his sins, but for ours. Those are our sins in that nail being pounded through his flesh. Not his sins, our sins. So when you're suffering physically, when you're suffering emotionally, when you're suffering spiritually, the author of Hebrews wants those in this little Hebrew church and us as well today to know that you have a high priest, a great high priest who knows what it's like to submit to the Father's will in reverent submission and trust him to deliver you however he sees fit. And as hard as it is to keep believing, as hard as it is to keep submitting and keep praying out to God when you're not getting the answer you want, this verse reminds us that we can go confidently before his throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace in our times of need because that is our great high priest. We have a great high priest who deals with us with sincere compassion because he understands what it's like to submit to the Father's will even when we feel we, like we cannot press forward another day. And he's not there just once a year, beloved, on the Day of Atonement. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father eternally making intercession for us. Beloved, this is why we're taking such a deep dive into the theological truths of a book like Hebrew. Hebrews, it's not so we can astound our friends with our deep theological insights and the depth of our theological knowledge. It's so we can see the majesty and the holiness of the one who is our eternal prophet, priest, and king. Because when we see him more clearly for who he is, we have a better understanding of whom we are in light of who he is. And that knowledge, that understanding, that correct understanding should drive us to the cross, which in turn should drive us to our knees as we come to the humbling reality of our own sinfulness. And that Knowledge of our own sinfulness should remind us of the price that was paid for the one who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might be reconciled to God. Beloved, that's why we study books like this. Not just for knowledge, for knowledge puffs up with pride. But knowledge that drives us to who God is and who we are in relationship to who God is that drives us to the understanding that we have a great high priest Who is not only eternal and appointed by God, but also has sincere compassion for us? He hears our loud cries, He sees our tears, and we have full confidence because He has experienced it beyond what we can ever imagine that we can draw near with confidence and receive mercy and find grace. In our time of need. What a wonderful truth that is. And is it not indeed one we could meditate on for all of eternity and yet not fully grasp the wonder of it all? Let us close in prayer as we meditate on this wonderful, wonderful truth. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord or the reminder from your text here today that even though we dig so deeply into your word, Lord, it's not so we can astound others. It's so that we can know you and better understand who we are as we understand who you are. And Father, I pray that as we know more about you, as we draw closer to you, that you'll draw near to us, revealing more of yourself, which in turn should drive us to a deeper understanding of who you are and a desire to live a life that glorifies you. Father, forgive us for our hard-heartedness and our sinfulness and our pridefulness, may we dig deep in the truths of your word for your honor and glory. Father, I pray for those in our attendance here today who are hurting. And there are many. And Father, many are hurting in ways beyond our comprehension. It's one thing to understand and feel compassion for the pain of others. It's another when it's you that's wrestling through it. And it's not going away. And it doesn't seem like your prayers are being answered. It tests our faith. Thank you for the reminder today, Lord, that we have a great high priest. and We should cry out to you like Jesus did. Cry out to our great high priest who has sincere compassion for us that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.